the first time I was court ordered, the first time I went to a meeting was like 1996, 1997. And my sobriety date is 2005. You know what I mean? So it didn't happen. If you're above ground and sucking air, dude, there's hope. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Maintain Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Keeney, and we've got a great show for you today on maintaining sobriety with local comedian Jay Armstrong, who's maintained sobriety for over 16 years. Hear his journey from the bottom to the top and how he maintains. Make sure you listen to the end for a clip of our next episode with local actress Misty Jump on maintaining beauty. If you'd like to see a picture of our guests or read the show notes or a transcription of today's episode, you can visit ChristopherKeeney.com and click on podcasting. Also, I want to thank everybody for listening. We've had a great response so far. Be sure to review and follow. That way you can be notified of our next episode. All right, let's get to it with Jay Armstrong on maintaining sobriety. Today, we're going to have you on to talk about sobriety. Um, so what's the secret, man? I don't know. You know what I mean? I just did what I was told. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the secret. So is but, that... Okay, so if you can give us a little bit of background on just kind of, okay, I I had you on here. I'll I'll tell you a little bit about why I wanted you on the show, and then we can kind of go through some things. Like, so we've known each other for a long time, pretty much all my life that I can remember, because we were neighbors when we were kids, right across the street. Yeah, growing up on good or growing up in good old Independence, right. the you know. American pie as it could be, I guess, in our kind of neck of the woods. And uh, I remember us playing kickball and having fun and, and doing things like that. And then it kind of ventured. You went one way, I went another way. And your way was more towards drugs. Yeah, I mean, I started, you know, smoking weed at like 12, 13. Wow. Started drinking at 12 or 13. Uh, and it became, and I didn't know this at the time, you know what I mean? But it, it became my way to deal with trauma. It was trauma response. Yeah. You know? Uh, so the long and the short of my childhood is that it was brutal and violent all the time. Uh, when that front door closed and no one was home, like I, I was a, a, a punching bag for, for a lot of things, you know? Uh, disappointments, failures. Some of it was my own behavior, you know what I mean? But it was also other stuff. And, uh, and it was pretty brutal, but I was always afraid. You know what I mean? Like always afraid. And, yeah. and just that, the level of anxiety I had as a kid, uh, the, the best way I can describe it is like when you're working a job that you hate and you've got like 10 minutes left of the work day and you keep looking at the clock, that's how every second of the day felt for me. Wow. And, uh, that first time that I drank, man, it, I didn't feel like that anymore. You now, know, see, I felt normal. I felt, I felt on the inside the way everybody looked on the outside. Like I felt, I felt okay for the first time in my life. Like you got that release. It didn't even feel like release, man. No. It just, it felt, I just felt normal. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I never had before. And, I, and it was like at that moment when I realized the way that I normally felt was abnormal. And, you know, early nineties, you know, middle of the country, Mental health is not really 
a topic for most families. Oh, no. Know? no. And, uh, Especially right here in our neck of the woods. It's almost, even today, there's a stigma to any kind of mental health. It's like you want to keep it secret if, if you're even doing it or whatever. Me personally, I've been to shrinks. All, I call them shrinks. They're, they're uh, professionals. They're, they're doctors. They're and most I, of them don't know much better than we do. You right. know what I mean? Some of the stuff is obvious. And, right. and they know, but th- what they do know is these are the things that we can try. Right. You know, so people have this idea about getting help with their mental health and they go in and, and the therapist or the psychiatrist or whatever it is doesn't have an answer that works right away. And they're immediately like, well, this isn't going to work. I'm never going back. Right. You know what I mean? But it takes some trial and error sometimes. I mean, they're people, they're just people trying to figure it out too. They just happen to know what the different options are. Well, I remember going into my first time seeing, cause I, at the time I, I had been working at Fidelity, I was just stressed to the max. I didn't want to be in the financial industry or is, is what I thought at the time, but more of it was just an over, overstress kind of over time a lot of things just kind of going on and i remember going the first time going into a psychiatrist's office they just asked me a bunch of questions and i thought well, what is the point of this if all i'm going to be doing is answering questions and then it was like three four times after that it's like they're asking you questions to make you think about things that can help you or think of ways out of your situation or well, a lot different of the ways first to couple, handle things. A lot of the first couple of meetings with any mental health professional is them trying to figure out if you're even telling them the truth about stuff. Right. You know, uh, but yeah, but, but at that time, you know, I, the first, I started thinking about killing myself when I was like seven, right? Seven years old. And I, wow. I have dreams about it. And uh, suicidal ideation is something that just followed me. And, uh, you know, I mean, so I'm an adopted, right? So my real family didn't want me. That's how I saw it. Uh, I was given to a hardline Southern Baptist family. Uh, the man that, that led, he would call it led, led our home, was a brutal dictator, you know? And anything that didn't go his way, you know, his way of dealing with that was to take it out on somebody else, you know? So... The church that we went to was all hellfire and brimstone and damnation. You know what I mean? So right. uh, all I know is punishment and, you know, being unwanted. Right. You know, that's all I knew. But when, when I had those... showed the joys. I didn't know there was joy yeah. in life. You know, sometimes when I was at home alone uh, with the woman that raised me, uh, she would make grilled cheese and like pigs in a blanket and stuff, man. And that was like my joy. You know what I mean? Like, that was it. Like, well, I can remember, like, back in the day, hanging out and playing Sega. And, because that was the thing, is you know, we didn't have too many video games. Like, I think we eventually got an Atari at some point in time. But you had, like, the Sega. I mean, you had every kind of game system you wanted, all the games well, and everything. And it a- was this very, like, fire and ice, or, like... Yeah, fire and ice kind of situation. We'd be sitting there playing. You'd be getting anything you wanted. And then sometimes your dad would walk in the door and just... Oh, when that door opened, dude, it was like spinning a slot machine. Like, you never knew what was happening. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of that video game stuff is, is stuff I would borrow from friends. You know, like I had a Sega Master System, uh, which not a lot of people did. So people remember that, Yeah, you know, but... They were cheaper because they didn't sell well, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so when I took those first few drinks of alcohol, I just felt okay for the first time in my entire life. 
You know, none of the worries, none of the anxiety. Didn't feel like somebody was going to grab my shoulder at any moment. I just, I, I was just there and I was okay and I was fine. And I made a conscious decision. I will do this every chance I get. And, and, I, and that's what I did, you know. So at 12 years old at, at a friend's house, uh, I had alcohol for the first time. We had a bunch of the uh, cinnamon schnapps, like airplane bottles that he had stolen from his parents. Uh, we drank a ton of them, like an absolutely ridiculous amount for 12-year-olds, especially 12-year-olds that have never drank before. Yeah. Uh, and I, I blacked out. I passed out, and I woke up covered in my own pee, right? And the one thing that I did tell myself, uh, that only happened because you're 12 and you're drinking hard liquor, right? And there's some truth to that. There is. Right. Uh, but the, the real truth of the matter is, is that I'm alcoholic. And when I start pouring alcohol down my throat, I can't stop until I pass out. And the last time that I drank was on Halloween, October 31st of 2005. Uh, my sobriety date's actually November 8th because I did drugs between that day that I drank and the day that I actually got sober. Uh, and, and that night, I uh, I drank until I black out. And yeah. I peed myself in my sleep just like I did when I was 12, only now I'm doing it at 25. Right. You know, so my, my body never matured in the way that I thought it would <laughs> where I would be able to be fine. And Yeah. Um, well... But at some point, I mean, if anybody drinks too much, they're going to black out. Right, right. And, but most people, yeah. most people know when to stop, though. Right. And it's not about even knowing when to stop. It's a chemical reaction. The enzymes in the liver are different. Like, we know a lot more about alcoholism now than we did uh, even when I was a kid, you know, let alone in the 70s, 80s, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's an enzyme issue. Uh, acid out of high diacetic acid. Uh, diacetic acid and acetonin acetate in the bloodstream like that's how the body metabolizes alcohol uh, it hits the stomach the brain gets signals that says hey we, we need uh, we need these enzy- enzymes to change this alcohol into acid aldehyde and then from acid aldehyde and the diacetic acid well, the enzymes are off in an alcoholic uh, and it, it creates an intense insane craving for alcohol that's once you've put it in you right yeah. so there's two parts of alcoholism you got the uh the phenomenon of craving, which only develops in alcoholics, right? Which is after you've taken that first drink. And then there's the mental obsession, which is what causes you to take the first drink, you know, when you would. So when you say mental obsession, what do you mean by that? Uh, the mental obsession is, is it, it's a compulsion. You know what I mean? It's an obsessive, beho- compulsive behavior. There, if you find an alcoholic or even a drug addict at, say, 9 o'clock in the morning, and you can ask them, you're going to stay sober today and they'll pass the lie detector test because they mean it when they say yes. But then that compulsion comes on and people who have never experienced like a real compulsive behavior in their life, they don't get it. You know, they, they look at people who do that stuff and there, there are other compulsive behaviors. There's people that compulsively eat toilet paper off the roll. You know what I mean? There's weird well, stuff. There's normal stuff, compulsive eating. You well, know? and here, here's the thing is that that's kind of because, you know, we grew up on the same streets. I know we had different situations and everything, but we we both grew up the same time period and everything. But I feel like where you went towards drugs or alcohol for your compulsive feelings, I was handed food and sugar. And to this day, I'm still fighting that feeling of, well, t- today didn't go bad, or today didn't go great, so I need a donut. Right, this is where comfort is. Right. Yeah. So, and and I feel like you found that in and different... In chemical mitigation of the trauma response is right. what it was. Uh, you know, and it was pretty clear early on that, that I had a problem with alcohol. 
right? Like the first time someone used the word alcoholic to me, I was 14. Wow. And uh, I was like, this is crazy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not even a grown-up yet. I'm not an alcoholic. Right. Like, and I still had that same idea, though. Like, my body just hasn't matured to catch up with what it needs. Yeah. And that's how I really saw it, though, is need, not want. Right. And, you know, once once I found a way to escape that anxiety and that fear and that constant depression and suicidal ideation, like, it became knowing that it didn't have to be there made it worse. Right. When it was there. Right. Right. Because then so, you just wanted it to go away as soon as possible. Right. And, and uh, so I couldn't, just getting sober wasn't an option. Right. It just wasn't. And so I tried to try to just smoke weed. You know what I mean? And that didn't work. And I tried various pills here and there. And, and some of those I liked, you know, but I still drank. Yeah. You know, I was still, you know, a lot of times at that age, I was shoplifting liquor from like CBS pharmacy and stuff like that. I, my parents didn't drink. You know, yeah. uh, I had a friend uh, that had his parents drank and he would go to their liquor cabinet almost every morning before school when, when I went to high school and he would fill up his thermos with like a shot or two out of each bottle. So they didn't notice a lot of it gone out of one bottle, man. Mm-hmm. And it would be like gin mixed with whiskey, mixed with vodka, mixed with rum, mixed with oh. like Kahlua. Oh, it was so terrible. So like the bar bucket at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, like somebody wiped the bar and then wrung the rag out into this thermos, dude. It was so gross. Uh, we drank it almost every day at lunch. And, wow. uh, I was drunk a lot at height in high school. But, really? Yeah. Uh, I had some friends and they would, you know, we'd be at the lockers or whatever and they'd be taking nips off of something. And I, now here's the thing though, like living next door to you, I saw this stuff going on. Cause I remember the, the day that we kind of diverged paths, I was, cause let's see, I'm, I'm 39 right now. How old are you? 41. 41. Okay. So three year or two year difference. I think I was around eight or nine when this happened, but we were riding bikes together and we went up to Kenton elementary and we were riding around and everything. And then all of a sudden you saw some cigarette butts on the ground and you're like, Oh, these, these still got some stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to smoke these. And I'm like, right. in my, my kid brain was like, that's, that's gross. You don't want to do that. And then that was kind of <laughs> like you were two years ahead of me and everything, like going to school and all that stuff. Right. So it was just like, oh, well, that's that's gross. I don't want to do that. Like, Oh, dude, I, nicotine is still my only addiction still. Really? Uh, I, I mean, I started, I smoked the first, probably the very first time I ever smoked was probably around nine or ten. So it's probably a year later or so than, yeah. than what you're thinking. But uh I started smoking regularly at like 11 or 12 and yeah. uh, then dipping really? after that. And, uh, well, and that's the thing. That's where it got kind of smoked solid for 24 years, man. Really? And so what's crazy. This is what's crazy. So I, I, I tell this to people all the time because I, I do advocacy work inside of the tobacco harm reduction field. Uh, when I was like 18 and 19 years old, I'm shooting cocaine and heroin on a regular basis, which is what I was getting to. You know, the alcoholism, the, the problem with alcohol, the crazy behavior that came from it. Uh, dude, I would get naked in the middle of the street and try to fight cops. You know what I mean? I was nuts, dude, when I drank. Uh, it was, it was bad there, but I didn't know how, I didn't know how to deal with life. Okay. Not doing something. Just to 
Thank God there wasn't like social media back then, oh right? God. You'd be in so <laughs> so there was some like MySpace had just started. Like oh, when, I, when I got sober, dude. yeah, and and I am so grateful, right? <laughs> that there's none of those like recorded thoughts or feelings from back then, right? Like, man, I would scream crazy stuff at strangers. I mean, I was a psychopath. And imagine putting a phone with social media access, oh, like my in God. your. I mean, that's that's kind of what we're going through today. Yeah, live stream some of the stuff that it was right. nuts. But, uh, yeah, so there were times that that I would just be outside and just take my clothes off and try to pee. Wherever I was, or take a dump wherever I was, you know what I mean. I was just I mean, that does sound kind of free, just insanely like, drunk, right. you know. And so at sixteen, I was hanging out with some older guys, and when I say older, I mean like twenty, twenty-one to like 25, 30 even. Uh, and they were like, "Man, you can't, you can't come over here and drink anymore." And I was like, "Oh, so I can't come over?" And they were like, "No, you can come over. We like hanging out with you, but you can't drink here, man." That's that's the deal. Wow! Well, so they cut you off, even though they were still drinking. They were still right. Well, what they what they came to me with was was some Dilaudid, which is a super high powered opiate narcotic pain medication. That's a pill, but you can crush it down and shoot it like you can shoot heroin. And uh, they were like, "We've all been doing this." And so I was like, "All right, cool. It's whatever." You know, I know I know Officer Burke from the Dare program lied to me about every single other drug that I've been doing. Oh, right. He probably lied about this too, but. uh so, the, you know, the, the, our dare officer from like my fifth and sixth grade, you know, if you smoke pot, you're going to end up being a psychopath in a penitentiary. You know what I mean? Then I met people that smoked weed. Right. And they were all right. You know right. what I mean? They were still normal people. Right. And, and so well, they're lying about that. And, you know, and, and drinking was the same way. You know, they try to, a drug is a drug is a drug. And, well, not really. Right. You know, uh, to some extent, yes. Addiction is addiction is addiction. Yes. So whether it's sugar addiction, caffeine addiction, crack cocaine addiction, the consequences of those things are vastly different. Right. You know, at least the everyday consequences. Uh, now, the long-term consequences of like real sugar addiction, like it's still death. Right. You know, but nobody says, look at that piece of garbage over there. He, you know, he's, right. he's killing himself with cakes. You know, what a scumbag. He's, he's. The, the health care that he's going to require is making everybody's insurance go up. You know? Right. But somebody who's, especially somebody who's trying to escape trauma that doesn't know how to other than through chemical mediation of those those issues. Oh, exactly. I can remember many times where I'd eat a cheeseburger and then all of a sudden my brain is happy and everything is fine until that sugar craving wears That's off. And then I need another one, man. Right. And, but you don't see a, a bunch of McHeroines on the corners. <laughs> like you... <laughs> But but anyway, the, the point is is that that's the, the thing about marijuana being a gateway drug, right? It, it's a gateway drug because of the way that we're taught that all drugs are equal. Right. And then you meet some people that, that consume cannabis, and they're still normal people. Right. Right? They're not crazy, murdering, psychopaths going to a penitentiary. Right. You know what I mean? And so once you've opened that door to knowing that you've been lied to, that's that's when you're that's when you get to that point where you're like, well, what else are they lying about? How bad is cocaine really? Right. You know what I mean? How bad is Xanax really? Right. Well, I mean, even doctors are giving Xanax away. Well, I mean, doctors used to give cocaine for oh, the yeah. dentists and all of this. I mean, Coke. There's the a original reason. formula of Coke had, I think, 05 percent of cocaine in it or yeah, something man. like that. I mean, cocaine made every great film in the eighties. So, <laughs> but that's always seen as like a rich and glamorous drug where heroin never was, but, right. or well, for some people they viewed it that way, but Hollywood never really made it look that way. Right. You know? But so 
you know, when, once I realized that, that they lied to me about drinking, they lied to me because my parents both told me, you know, we grew up in Hardline. I grew up in Hardline Southern Baptist Church. You don't drink. Right. You know, so they told me that alcohol was evil. And then when I drank alcohol and it made me feel okay for the first time, it's like these bastards want me to feel this way. Right. Like they want, they want me to experience this. They're lying to me. They know that there's a way out of this. Right. And did you ever associate like, well, they said that alcohol is evil. So I guess I'm evil too. So screw it. Um, not so much. No. Okay. Uh, I mean, I definitely rebelled against the church and now I'll have, as an adult, I, I I have probably more anger towards organized religion than I did as a kid because of what they do to people. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that all religious people are bad. Right. You know what I mean? It's not to say even that all churches are bad. Right. Uh, but with like what we're finding out now about like these resident schools from the Catholic church all through, you know, the Northern United States and Canada, dude, they're finding thousands right. of kids that they, they either killed or let die and didn't tell nobody about, you yeah. know? So, I mean, that's the way that, that that particular organization, you know, that's their legacy. You know what I mean? Regardless right. of how they want to paint it. And so when I see people who subscribe to that same legacy, to that, that same organization, I'm like, how, how could you? Right. You know what I mean? And it, it hurts my heart to know that, like, they've been just so wrapped up in it. It's like, it's like a, it's like someone, someone's a victim of abuse. You know what I mean? And they do everything in their power to protect their abuser. Right. You know, because they have that, that weird, you know, like Stockholm syndrome type of thing. Right. Uh, they start to identify and then they, they want to. Well, they think they deserve it. Right. If I can only be better, this wouldn't happen. I right. need to make that person happy or that group happy. The point I was getting to though is, is the alcohol got crazy out of hand, crazy fast and it stayed that way. And yeah. until I found opiate narcotics and it took me to the same level emotionally and mentally that alcohol did only I didn't do anything crazy I didn't try to fight the cops I didn't try to pee in public I didn't try to you know fight my best friend you know I was that guy that I have never met you before and you come to a party or a place where people are drinking we say party none of them were parties you know what I mean if there's not a cake or some hats it's not a party it's a drinking session and I've never seen you before and then I come straight up to you and I'm like I heard what you said about me you know what I mean? And you have right. no idea because we've never met. Right. But I'm about to start something for no reason at all other than I'm, I'm so inebriated that, that I can't control myself. So uh, which just... is not really an excuse because you can stop drinking. And I know with alcoholism, you can't just say, all right, well, I'm done. But you can go get that help. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, some people are just not ready for help when the help arrives. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not saying that either. But what, what I'm saying is for me is I'm not excusing any of the crazy behavior that I did, you know, I'm still accountable for that. Right. You know, uh, and I, and I've made, you know, the amends that I can make, you know, as good as I can make them. You know what I mean? Some things can never be repaired. You know, right. and some things there are situations where you're going to cause more harm by trying to go back to compare, repair them. But, uh, but at that time, that's how crazy I was. So when, when I, when I started using opiate narcotics and the first day it was a lot of the second day it was heroin. And, and when I say heroin, I mean heroin. It was actually, like, heroin back then it wasn't fentanyl it wasn't car fentanyl that i mean that's what's killing people today and i say this and it sounds terrible to people that don't understand like the severity of the situation that we're in but the problem with heroin right now is that it's not heroin it's fentanyl and it's killing people left and right, right. and but people we, we went through this weird phase where nobody cared uh when junkies died because they were poor or they were minority right, right? they didn't care at all and then suburban kids uh, suburban white kids specifically started dying and everybody cared 
Right. And now we're at this point where society is desensitized to it. You know what I mean? We, if you're if you're out and about and somebody has an overdose in the bathroom at McDonald's, you're just like, ah, sucks that it happened, but that's just the world we live in. Right. You know? I, I know right now when we drive by Pioneer Park, supposedly that is become a place for people to go um, and, I guess, chill in their cars or do whatever they do. And any place that has running water and a closed door is a place where a junkie will shoot dope. Yeah. Uh, that's just a fact of life, man. Uh, I mean, I got high in Wendy's bathroom so much because they had a locking door, right, yeah. that when I go in now, there's, they still use the same cleaning agents that they used then. And I have that flash, that mental flash, but uh, when so I smell it, takes, it yeah. yeah. So they say that smell has the biggest like memory connection. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't make me want to get high. No, but, but it, it but takes you back. It, it reminds triggers me the, of it. the memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, typically it's like gratitude is what I get now when I, when I smell that. But yeah, so, and I went pretty deep into that for a solid nine and a half, almost 10 years. Wow. You know, uh, homeless you know the first time that i got kicked out of my house was i was 14 you know what i mean and that wasn't even i wasn't even using heavy drugs yet you know i had a little bit of experimentation with you know lsd and and, you know definitely alcohol pretty regularly and marijuana super regularly and nerve pills here and there but i wasn't shooting cocaine and heroin at that point right you know and i got kicked out even then so i was used to it by the time that i became like a real junkie you know and when I was like 13 and 14, uh, well, especially like 14 and 15, I would get thrown out of my house. And then, you know, the man who, who quote unquote led our home uh, yeah. would call the police and say that I ran away. And wow. that was a game that we played. And it was terrible. And I hated it. Yeah. Because yeah, it's either stand there and catch a beating, you know, or right. leave, or, like you told me. And then I got to deal with cops. Right. You know, running me down and. It just, it was so, it was constant stress, man. Right. And, and you know, I've, I've gone to so much therapy and it was weird because the first couple of years I was sober, I would, I would argue that the first decade that I was sober, uh, I felt like I owed it to them to forgive them. Yeah. You know, cause that's kind of what I was taught, you know, in recovery. And the truth is, is I don't. I don't owe that to them. You know what I mean? I owe it to myself to not hold on to that constant resentment, but I don't have to let them into my life in any way. You know, I don't have to say that your behavior was okay because I did this or make it up an excuse. Because that's one of the things that I did because I didn't understand what forgiveness really was. You know what I mean? When when I first got sober, I, I associated it with saying what you did was okay. You know what I mean? That's what I associated forgiveness with. And that's what I tried to do for like the first 10 years. And, uh, and, and that's not what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness so is just not holding on to that constant rage. But I'm not going to make that same mistake of letting those people in my life again. Right. So let me ask, have they, since you've been sober, have they at any point in time taken any ownership or uh, responsibility? or The woman that I called my mother growing up uh, has. She apologized. Like a year ago, maybe, but we're talking 15 years after I've been sober. You know what I mean? I've been sober since November 8th, 05. So I'm coming up on, if I don't drink, use, or die between now and November 8th, that's, you know, that's 16 years. That's amazing. Uh, That's that's a fantastic accomplishment. And I mean, that's. I don't know that it's really an accomplishment, man. Uh, It is. From, from where I've seen you before to where you are now you have accomplished many things to, to I the point up a bunch of weight i'll tell you that uh yeah. that's what i've accomplished 
A pretty significant beer belly without yeah. drinking a drop of beer. Uh, but, I mean, I follow directions. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So did you do like a 12-step program or what? I did. Okay. I did. Uh, I, I can't say which one because they're all anonymous. You know what I mean? And, and here's the thing where I'm at with it now, though. Like, So I still do the, the, the step work, right? But I don't know if it helps. I really don't. I don't know if the step work helps at all. I don't. What I do know is that in the particular program that I'm in, I've never seen anyone come in and do all of that work the way that it says to in our literature, like the actual way that it says. Because you go to some of these 12-step meetings and people say wild stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, why well, did this step and it was like this? And in my head, I'm like, that's not what that book says. Like right. that. So I, like, I, were you following the directions? Because that's right, not how right. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. it's not and like all the words. So the thing that helped me out the most is I did a a, stud, a book study for guys that couldn't read. Uh, I guess I had almost a year clean and sober at that point, and we're going through this book. And so I, you know, I would tell them if there's a word that you don't get or or the context that you don't get, let me know. And we'll look it up in the dictionary. Like I'm not going to give these guys my version. Right. Of what I think it means or what it means to me. Because right. all these words had a definition before the guy that wrote the book used them. Right. That's why he picked those particular words. Yeah. And uh, so we would look them up in a dictionary. And if there was a word in that definition that they didn't get, we would look that word up and, yeah. until they understood what it was trying to say. And it taught me more than it taught them. Right. You know, which I, I did it because I was told to do it. You know what I mean? I didn't go into it thinking I would get anything out of it. I, I went into it because that's what somebody told me to do. Right. And, uh, so what gave you that feeling of, I need to give up what I think is best and start listening to others? Uh, constant failure, yeah. you know, uh, at that point. So the first time I ever really tried to get sober was in 2004. First time I was court ordered in a treatment was like 96, late 96, early 97. It's hard to get the exact dates in the, in the brain, but I was on juvenile probation and, uh, I got caught drinking out at the airport with a bunch of friends and so I got juvenile probation and I failed a drug test for opiate narcotics and uh, they told me I had to go to some of these meetings, right? So that's the first time I was court ordered in treatment. So, you know, I meet people in recovery that that feel like a failure because they didn't get it the first time. You know what I mean? The first time I was court ordered, the first time I went to a meeting was like 1996, 1997 and my sobriety date is 2005. You know what I mean? Right. So, so it, it man, didn't if you're, happen if you're right above away. ground and sucking air, dude, there's hope. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and if, if, if you're listening to this and you feel hopeless, if you're alive, like there's still, there's still hope, you yeah. know? Uh, but yeah, so all this time watching people come in and out, dude, I've seen tens of thousands of people come in and out of recovery in, in this time. And, uh, you know, when I, when I first got clean, I was kind of working in treatment. They were going to send me to, to school and, and all that stuff to be a counselor. And, and then there was an incident that occurred at the facility where I just knew it wasn't for me. Right. Uh, they kicked some guys out because of the zero tolerance policy. Uh, neither of those guys did what they did in a nefarious way. You know, it just seemed super unfair to me. And I had to watch like a 50 and a 70 year old man cry and beg to stay because they made them sit through a clinical, they made me sit through it too, because I'm the one that sent them back to the, the facility from class, uh, crying, beg for their bed saying, you know, I just don't want to hurt my family no more and then still kick them out. You know what I mean? Right. And I was just like, I can't do this. Right. This is not for me. But just in that, you know, that year, 
you know, I probably saw 5,000 men come in and out of that facility, you know, because they come stay for four days, come stay for a week, you know, and, and, and leave. Do enough to show, you know, satisfy the court system. Or the, or family, or the family, or, you yeah. know, the, the boss, or, you know, sometimes they just, they were just tired. You yeah. know what I mean? They wanted to come in and eat some expired vending machine sandwiches, you know, and <laughs> just yeah, and get some energy for that next run. But the, the thing that, that's been true through all of it, is that I've never seen anyone come in and do all the work and continue to do the work the way that it says to in our book and fail. Right. Never. Not once. But here's the truth of the matter. I don't know. I don't know that it's the actual work that fixes people or just that willingness to do anything it takes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Somebody who's beaten down that much yeah. uh, to where... They'll follow directions, you know, and in the early days, a lot of those directions were just to keep me busy. You know, some of the stuff that those guys were telling me stuff that's not in the book, but hey, go do this. Hey, go do that. You yeah. know, do, do the, the, the book study for guys that can't read. Go shake hands at the door at this meeting. Go make coffee for this meeting. You know, those sort of things to keep, keep my crazy, you know, just anxiety ridden self, you know, so busy. Did they provide you, do you feel with a, a lot of structure? Oh, that, that, that treatment facility I went to, it was a homeless shelter that offered a program of recovery. And if you, there was a lot of zero tolerance stuff there. So like, I was already pretty good at institutional living at that point though. Like when I have that structure forced upon me, I can operate within the framework of it. Right. And that doesn't mean I operate within the framework of it sober all the time. I was getting drunk and high the whole time that I was locked up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but the first time that I tried to get sober was in 04. And I went to St. Elizabeth, the hot, it was St. Luke's at the time in Florence to the psych ward and told him I was going to kill myself because I didn't want to live the way that I was living anymore. And uh, the doctor came in and talked to me. Uh, it was like, look, people who start using drugs as young as you did and continue as long as you did, don't get well. They die from alcoholism and drug addiction, period. He wow. said, but we have this program to send people uh, to the, to the Falmouth care unit, the state will pay for it. Will you go? And I was like, I guess, man, part of me instantly got resentment though. Like, oh, I'm going to die. Um, I'll show you. Like a challenge. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I stayed sober for almost nine months. You know, I completed their little program and then I started doing a 12 step program afterwards. And I got to the point where I was uh, supposed to be, supposed to be making amends, right? Nine step. And, uh, it was the first thing that I didn't have to bring back and show somebody and say, hey, this is what I did. This is what I wrote. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. just supposed to be out and doing them. You know, I'm not recording them to take them back to prove that I did them. So. Right. There's no nobody to show your work to. Right. And so you don't take medicine if you're not sick. Right. And I already felt better than I had ever in my life. So I didn't do it. I just started, I started lying about it, you know. Right. And uh was not long until I was like, you know what? I could probably uh, have a few drinks now. And then I did. And then the very next day I woke up hungover and I was like, uh, heroin will fix this hangover immediately. And, wow. uh, you know, it was almost, uh, I don't know, six to eight months of like pretty hard ripping and running after that. And, uh, that's when I went to the, to the healing place in Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, it's a slightly different facility now than it was when I went there. But at the time it was mainly a homeless shelter that offered, they just happened to offer a program of recovery. So, uh, you know, I went down there and, uh, 
I was willing to listen and I was willing to. And so here's the thing though. I had already had a taste of that. If I do what I'm told and, and do this work, uh, I, I'll be happier. I'll be yeah. more able to deal with life and I'll be more able to, you know, stay clean and sober. Cause I had that like almost nine months, man. And it was probably some of the best times of my life up to that point. Do you feel like when you got to Louisville, you were finally doing it for yourself? Versus like a challenge or I don't know that I was doing it for myself. I was just doing it. Yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean. And uh, my only other option was suicide at that point. And uh, I had seen this uh, this special. I don't remember if it was sixty minutes or Barbara Walters or what it was, but it was all people who had failed at suicide attempts, and uh, they had made their lives just way worse. You know what I mean? Yeah, that would like like I'm ugly enough, so I didn't want to be the guy that blew half his face off and lived through it. Now right, gotta, and then have to explain that to everybody who sees. Uh, right. Yeah. And good luck. Good luck getting getting somebody who you also find as attractive to be, you know, your significant other at that point. And yeah. you know, there was a guy who uh, jumped in front of a train and ended up paralyzed from the neck down. Like those images. Every time I would get really close to going through with all for myself, like that's what would come up. Yeah. You know. And you, you never think. You're not going to fail at that. Yeah, like you if that's you're something to. you're really, but and and life has a way of kind of smacking you in the face and saying you're going to fail at what I want you to fail at. Right. So learn it instead of. I mean, Van Gogh failed at it. You know what I mean? That's dude who was a brilliant guy. Yeah. Uh, fantastic artist. You know, even at his time, they saw him as one of the greats, and it was a uh, his, his suicide was a nightmare. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. a several day stretch of bleeding out from a stomach wound. You yeah. Know? Yeah, that's uh, enough alone to turn you away from it. Right, right. And, and I had a pretty good attempt in, like, 2001. Uh, I took enough between benzo nerve pills, uh, old-school tranquilizers, and opiate narcotics to kill someone five times my size. Wow. And uh, this is, like, before Narcan was on every corner. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, dude, I, I woke up in the hospital. So I went out at the Frisch's on 5th and Philly in Covington, uh, by the time I came to in the hospital, they had notified the woman I called my mother. Uh, well, they, they found out who I was, found out who my next of kin was, notified her. She was in the hospital, jacket off, purse on the floor before I came to. And I had all the, the tubes and stuff, man, and I started going to, to rip those out. And dude, I was just so mad that I was alive. I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. You know, and then... <laughs> that suicide attempt violated my probation. That's why I went to prison. That violated my probation with a suicide attempt. And in court, uh, they didn't even want to hear anything. Dude, I spent 12 hours <laughs> with this freaking psychologist when I was locked up to see whether or not I was criminally responsible for my actions. Wow. And uh, they said no, that I was not, that I was under severe uh, mental anguish and, and whatnot at the time. And, so what would the, what was the choices there if they if they would have said that you They could were... have reinstated my probation and sent me to either a treatment center or a mental health facility or lock me up. Or they could have just reinstated it with just do better, try harder, yeah. you know, uh, which the guy right before me, right before me, man, was a uh, pedophile who had failed to sign the predators list. And they just reinstated him. Make well, sure you sign that list. Right. Get on out of here. Ugh. And so, like, that gave me hope, yeah. right? Like, like, I hated that they let that guy back out because that, like, that's a dude who's really dangerous. Right. You know? Like, if you, I mean, if you're gonna let somebody who's that 
much of a danger to the public yeah. and people around him, then all right. Right, yeah, I'm good to go. Why do you care and about so, me? I'm just a danger to myself. The judge that I had was Judge Joseph Bamberger, who has since been disbarred and I believe charged criminally with a few things. Wow. Uh, there was a big lawsuit out in Boone County, and uh, he had worked a deal with like some of the lawyers for some kickback money, and uh, got busted. Wow. Boy, you just have, like, a great way of meeting all the worst people in life, don't you? You have no idea, man. You have no idea. I've met some of the wildest people, and some of it's been good, though. Some of it's been insane. Uh, So, like, uh, so so when I started doing comedy, right? So, like, it was, I've had, I've met a lot of wild, bad people in sobriety also, but I started doing comedy, like, Six year, five years, six years sober. Yeah, because that's uh, kind of when we picked up again. Was I, I noticed that you were doing the comedy around, like you you come back kind of to the neighborhood and to the street with with your daughter Julia and you know your daughter, my daughter hung out a little bit and everything. So we started coming back and and we went and saw you and one of your stand ups and I mean you were a changed man from the last time I. Had seeing you were really hung out with you. Right. Uh, I mean, I was a different person. Uh, but even then, I was still, the trauma response was still super heavy. You know what I mean? I would still fly off the handle and snap on people, you know. Uh, I used to have this real strong issue with when I saw someone being mean to a child in public, I got involved. And I don't just mean like I called the cops and reported it. I mean I walked my <laughs> my butt over there. And you would stick up for that in the kid. Middle of it. Yeah, that it, makes sense because well, it, it it doesn't though because I uh, you never again help or harm right right you never know no 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 I, I'm not saying that it makes sense that you do that right. it makes sense why you right yeah, no, Jay no, no, Armstrong behavior you want to you want to save that kid because you never got saved when you were a kid is what right. I'm thinking right no and, and, and it seems like it would make sense but that's what a PTSD trigger really looks like like we have all these people with this self-diagnosed PTSD that well I'll be triggered and what does that mean what do you do what's your trigger behavior. You know, what do you mean I get upset? That's not, that's not being triggered, man. That's not, that's not what it is. Like, it causes you to do some compulsive behavior. And for me, it was get violent with the guy that was, you know, and and how many of those situations that I make worse for that kid, you know, but here's what happened when I was, I don't know, six, maybe seven years old. uh, The man that I called my father growing up is just lighting into me on the front steps of the church that we went to. Right. And I had fallen asleep in church is what it was. And up until that point, I thought that that's how every kid was raised. Thought it was normal. But this dude pulls into the parking lot and jumps out of his car and comes running over. And he's like, you lay another hand on that kid and I will beat you to death right here on the steps of the house of the Lord. Wow. Dude. And it's the first vivid memory that I have. And I was like, man, that guy's upset. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? right. like, 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 why is this guy so mad? Why is this guy getting mad? I'm getting my ass and, beat. And yeah. then, so, so you never know. Like, you could be making it worse for that kid. You could be making it worse for that kid in the short term. But now he knows or she knows, like, hey, this isn't right. This isn't normal. This is not okay. Right. It is not okay. Right. And, and you will accept way more unacceptable behavior when you think that it's okay. Right. You don't know that it's not okay. You have no other reference point. Right. You're not going to other your friends' houses like, hey, does your dad punch you? Right. You it's know? not like you you go and you talk about this stuff with friends. I mean, right. nobody... and, and even then, people want to 
they want to assume that everyone's experience is like theirs. So say they get a swat here and there. You know, they get just regular spankings, and I don't believe in that either. I, right. I don't. No, I don't I, think it makes anything better. Right. Uh, I think it teaches your children to fear you, and I don't think I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. Right. I, I've never hit my kids. Yeah, I, I, we've never been raised on that. I, I remember there was one time I got a spanking, and it was because we were at Arby's. I ordered a strawberry shake. They gave me a chocolate shake. I tried to explain to my father that I wanted a strawberry shake. He was frustrated. He didn't listen. And I said, no, really? And that was enough for him to drag me into the bathroom and and just spank me in front of like three other guys that were also in there. And then he never did it again after my mom found out. Right. But so, so you, you want, everybody assumes that the human experience is, is similar. It's the same. So when, even if you do say something to somebody, they, they assume that you mean something that's not as insane as what's actually happening. But, right. So, yeah, I, I don't get involved anymore like that. You know, and it's taken a lot of therapy to stop that. Yeah. You know, and it is a compulsive behavior. I just can't do that. The, the only time that I ever really got worried is I went running up on this van from a guy that was shaking his daughter, like, against his van. And, uh, I told him he was done. Like, that's enough. And he turned out to be an off-duty police officer. <laughs> and, oh, uh, no. I was like, that could have went bad. But I still yeah. called 911, and I gave him the tag, and they were like, we will inform the agency that he works for. Because from the wow. FOP tag, they could tell who it was and where they worked and all that right, right. away because they were inside of uh, But, yeah, I mean, it took a lot of... Uh, a therapy to, to, to get beyond that. And do you feel like your comedy is therapy? Not really. No, no. Uh, I do talk about a lot of like painful stuff, but I don't know. That, I don't know that it's therapy. I, I don't know. I know that I enjoy it. Yeah. So is it a de-stressing? I mean, is de-stressing therapy in, in I, that yeah. sense it is, you know, uh, does it help me like work through the emotional ins and outs of the different things that happen? I, I don't think so. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, my thing is the de-stressing part of it is it, what I found to be kind of the secret for me was I, I figured out that my eating, my, my kind of issues were more about stress than anything else. And so once I, I was able to eliminate some of the, the stress and figure some things out and live a little bit differently, then things got a little bit easier. But now I find that I don't want to say thrill seeking, but it, like achieving a goal is like one of the things that's driving this, this weight loss now is in October, we're going down to the gorge mm-hmm. and I'm going to climb cloud splitter. Okay. And the reason why we're doing that is because me and my nephew, we went camping there last year and we're driving around and I had never been there. He'd been to the gorge a few times. So he's showing me around and everything. And I point to this thing. I was like, what's, or he, he points to this thing and he's like, that's cloud splitter. I was like, oh man, what's that? Let's go up there. And he was like, well, I mean, it, it's way up there. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Let, you know, we can pull over. Can we park here? And he's like, well, I mean, there's like rocks and stuff. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, and he's like, it's a climb. Yeah. Different. And he's like, and there's like a big tree with a rope. You got to like climb. And I'm like, finally, I look at him. I'm like, are you telling me that I'm too fat for us to go <laughs> up to this thing? 
Because that's fine. I understand where I am. I mean, you can say that. And he was like, yeah, you're too fat for this thing. And I'm like, all right, someday, buddy. So that was the thing is now my thing. I I can sit here and I can try to figure out why I'm so neurotic, why I, you know, have whatever issues I have. Or I can kind of set goals for myself that are in line with where I want to be in the future. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think understanding, I think understanding yourself, knowing yourself, why, why you do things. I do think that it is helpful. Do I think it's the most important thing? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like at the very beginning, I said, I don't know. I just, and I don't, right. and I'm okay with that now. And yeah. like I said, when, when somebody asks me something, I don't know, we look it up, you know, like we'll find out together. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not afraid to say that, that I don't know anymore. And I, I don't have to put on this air that like I know everything, you know. I've so, always wanted to start a religion just called, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Like who, who knows who cares? Well, and that's the thing. Like who created the world? I don't know. Like, but you can go help somebody or go like give some money to some people. Like I know that. I don't know who you know created that cloud or the tree or any of that. Honestly, I don't really need to know that. Yeah. Like to make myself a good person, right? You just need a little healthy amount of apathy, right? That's uh, that's what I said to my my buddy Pat's father in law the other day, and he was like, a, a good amount of apathy is super healthy. And, uh, this is a dude who's a professor of anthropology, uh, but uh, super cool, interesting experience with that guy. But yeah, so I, I mean, I I don't know, you know, all the inner inner workings and stuff. But I try to find out why I do things. I try to find out why I have the responses that I have, and, and I try not to hold on to this idea that I know how to fix it. You know, I mean, it wasn't until almost fifteen years sober that I finally said, you know what, I don't have to continue living. Well, it was continued abuse is what it was. And right. passing on that to, to my daughter from the people that raised me, we're just done. Right. You know what I mean? Like, just work, work, work done. This is over. Right. You know, I don't owe this to you. And I I figured out why I thought that I owed it to him. You know, and it's because of things that I was told early on in recovery and because I didn't understand some of the things, the concepts that were being told to me. I, I don't owe it to anyone to keep them in my life. I just don't, you right. know, and... Knowing why, I mean, I, so the simple things like why do I get involved when the PTSD trigger of child abuse comes up, uh, like that's pretty straightforward, you yeah. know what I mean? But there's also other anxieties that come up and it's like, well, why am I afraid of this? Why am I afraid of that? Right. You know, and, and finding out why a lot of times can be helpful. But it's like those readings. If you go down the road and you're like, well, I don't know why I'm like this. Okay. Well, why? Let me look for the definition. Then I find the definition in this. And then, you know, you have to kind of get to the, I always call it the pee under the mattress before you can finally sleep well. Right. And I mean, it seems like you, you had a pretty good run of being able to do that on a consistent basis. Well, I mean, I definitely know myself now, you know, I, uh, like I said, it's been tons of therapy, tons of recovery work, you know, this is. I ha- and I have a way different attitude towards a lot of things like that than I did when I first got clean. Yeah. You know, but the, the one thing that I, that I, that I've maintained, if you will, is, yeah. uh, you know, once I decided that, that, like, this is what I want, you know, I mean, I, I do want to stay sober. And I can't tell you that it happened before I went to treatment. I can't tell you that, that I did, cause I don't know when it really became like, this is it. Right. This is what I'm doing. And so, like, there's been things that I've avoided, you know, and people keep telling me like, you know, like throughout these different things, uh, you're so strong, you know? So like that, 
when my daughter's mother and I split up and she disappeared with her for three months and then moved a convicted sex criminal in with them, you know, like you didn't hurt yourself, you didn't drink, you didn't hurt anybody else, you're so strong. It's like, no, I'm afraid of what will happen if I do those things. Right, like know? the situation could be made worse right, right. if I, I go down this path. Right, I know alcohol will make it worse. I right. know drugs will make it worse. Right. Uh, I know, you know, one of the things one of the old-timers told me when, he, when I first showed up to the room's recovery was I can't think of a single problem that alcohol can't make worse. You That's know? true. And uh, add drugs to that as well. Right. But so I had uh, my shoulder reconstructed. I had my right... Uh, I tore my rotator cuff completely. I tore my bicep and I had some bone spurs. And, I remember this. Uh, I refused all narcotic pain meds, right? Wow. Like even during the surgery, I didn't have any painkillers. Didn't you have to go through a bunch of hoops just to not have the painkillers? The- no, not really. Uh, the, the physical therapy was a nightmare without it. You know, it, I mean, it hurt. It really did. And I have a pretty high threshold for pain. You know, I, I've been walking around on a torn ACL for 12 years now. Wow. You know, I, it's bad enough to where after I had the shoulder surgery, I was like, well, I might as well get this knee looked out now right. that I have insurance. You know? Bionic J, here right. we come, yeah. right? And so the doctor, my knee doctor told me that I've done so much damage to it walking on it with the torn ligament that he could replace the ligament today and I would not notice. Really? Yeah. I mean, so you've done so much that there's there's no. Yeah. So back. he said in five or ten years we'll do a total knee replacement and that'll be that. You know, uh, I would have been ready for it right then. Yeah. You know, let's do it, man. Like yeah. I'm already hurt. Let's do this. Uh, you know what I think they should start doing? Putting like Bluetooth and stuff in these replacements. <laughs> so you can just, going bad. <laughs> no. So you can just. Oh, okay. Now I can start my playlist. Just tap on my <laughs> knee right here. All right. But so uh, before the surgery. My surgeon told me that I could not refuse the morphine during the surgery. Wow. Right? And so I told him immediately, okay. Because I, I got I to get done. Right. You know? But I wasn't really that okay with it. Right. You know? And, you know, I talked to other people in recovery and, and guys that were kind of like my advisors, if you will, and, and stuff. And I, and I acquiesced to it. You know what I mean? Like, well, that's what it's got to be. It's what it's got to be. I can't lift my arm. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I got to be able to use my arm. Like, I, I literally, like, I could move it. Like, if I try to raise my arm up forward or to the right, I can move it like a foot. And that was it. Wow. Total tear of the rotator cuff and, uh, and part of the bicep. And so I get to the, to the surgery center, day of surgery. And uh, the surgeon comes in and he does some drawing and stuff in my arm and signs his little initials on everything and leaves. And then the anesthesiologist comes in. And he goes, it says here that you're allergic to opiate narcotics. Is that true? And I said, well, allergic isn't really the right way to say it. I put that in there so I don't have to have this conversation. You know what I mean? I don't have to explain why I don't want the pain pills all the time. Right. And he goes, well, do you want to refuse all opiate narcotics? And I said, yeah. And I said, but the surgeon told me that during the surgery, like I couldn't refuse the morphine because there was a risk of me waking up. He goes, look, that's the doctor that does the cutting. I'm the doctor that does the medicine. Do you want to refuse it? And immediately it was huge victory in my heart. Like, hell yeah. Yeah. But then he walked out and I was like, maybe I shouldn't be in the middle of like this pissing contest between these two men who have my life in their hands. Right. You know? right. <laughs> but I still, I, I didn't back out of my refusal. So were you awake? Or no, anything? I tried to be. They told me I couldn't. Yeah. They told me uh, because of the positioning they would continue to move me into and I would have to stay absolutely still for it, that they couldn't. That they couldn't. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So they were able to knock you out, but just not give just you any. Just the sodium pentothal okay. instead of any opiate narcotics. Right. Uh, which, I mean, sodium pentothal is a narcotic, but it's not opiate. 
Uh, so when you woke up, like, how did that feel? I, well, I immediately became what the nursing staff described as combative. Uh, <laughs> also, a couple of things. Uh, so I woke up way faster than they were used to. Right. I didn't take the morphine. Yeah. And uh, I asked them, I was like, uh, I was like, when can I leave? It's the first words out of my mouth. And she was like, oh, honey, just, you don't need to worry about leaving. And I, man, I hadn't eaten in like 18 hours. I was like, I need a cheeseburger and I need nicotine and I need them now. And yeah. she goes, oh, honey, you don't need those things. And I was like, yes, I <laughs> do. And uh, so she kind of walks away and she comes back. And I was like, she's like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I feel like I need a cheeseburger and I need nicotine. And <laughs> she says, well, here's everything was a success. Just want you to know that if that makes you feel any better. But we did have to do two extra procedures. And I was like, well, what were they? And she's like, well, your wife's going to come in in a minute. She's going to be the one to explain that. And I was like, but you're here now. You know what I mean? Tell right. me. Don't tell me you did extra stuff to me and then not tell me what it is. Like, yeah. I'm upset, but like, I'm real groggy. And so she's like, that's not how it works. The doctor explains it to your significant other, and then they come in and tell you when you're a little more awake. You're like, and thanks was, for the telephone game here. I was like, she didn't even know that windmills didn't create wind, man. You're a nurse. Like, you're a professional. Like, <laughs> you went to school for this. How about you tell me? Right? So then Amber comes in. And, uh, I'm already like agitated with this nurse and, uh, she's like, well, are you, what's wrong? And I told her and, uh, the nurse is like, I told him he doesn't need a cigarette. I was like, I am not a smoker. And she's, she said, well, dip, chew, whatever it is. I was like, no, like I'm a vapor. And yeah. she goes, well, that's just as bad. And I, dude, I've said it so many right. times that it just came out like a tape recording. Like when we were talking about at the beginning, as you say it over and over again, right. dude, without missing a beat, according to the British Royal Ministry of Health, dude, like I could barely say my name a minute ago. Yeah. Now, according to the British Royal Ministry of Health, vaping e-liquid is at least 95% less harmful than smoking cigarettes. They first made that conclusion in 2015 and doubled down on it every single year. Like, dude, this, they like, so you're in immense pain and you're giving her all this. I'm giving her the business, right? <laughs> and so, like, I'm looking at her. Why right would they ever list you as combative? <laughs> well, so, what's funny though is like a few minutes before that, like, I'm slurring my words because I'm still coming to and, but now I'm like crystal clear and like Amber and the nurse are both looking at me like, where did this come from? Yeah. And she left the nurse, the nurse walked out and Amber told me, so they had to read. So when they did the MRI, they didn't look at the bicep at all. But when he got in there, he saw that the bicep was torn. And so they fixed that. And then I had some bone spurs and they got those out of there as well. Oh, they should just shave them down. Oh. They like grind them off. Oh, uh, that's making me hurt right now. Oh. But, uh, yeah, that was the, the, the extra things. And so then I started physical therapy like five days later or three days later, whatever it was. Uh, and I had a nerve block, right? So the nerve block was weird. I couldn't move my arm at all. Uh, I couldn't move my hand or my fingers. I just felt like everything was super swollen all the time. So this nerve block, was it doing anything for the pain? Or? Oh, yeah, I couldn't feel anything. Okay, okay. Like, so three, you couldn't For like just... three days. Wow. And then when that wore off, I felt it pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but then... I had an issue where the scar tissue formed before the muscle healed. So I had to go back in to do this pre procedure called a forced manipulation where they knock you out, but they just yank your arm straight up to try to break free all that scar tissue, man. Ugh. And uh, I had a, a moment that was kind of unnerving setting that up because I'm with like the scheduling person uh, ready to leave after the appointment where the doctor told me it was necessary. And uh, 
she's like, you refused pain meds last time. Do you want to refuse pain meds this time? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she goes, are you sure? And I go, yeah. And she's like, you know what this procedure is, right? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she goes, so you're sure you want to refuse the pain meds this time? And I was like, should I not be? She's like, well, this is going to be way worse than the surgery. Wow. Like, oh, my God. Thanks for telling me and that. It, and it wasn't even necessarily the procedure itself. It was that starting immediately the next day, it was five days in a row of physical therapy. So it wasn't that, yeah, okay. So you had to keep working on it, it yeah. and that's why they wanted to give it to you so you didn't have to, well, wow. I mean, plus it just, it hurt. Yeah. Like, it did. It did hurt. Like, I woke up, and the doctor just, so, like, even in the office, like, the day that I went in for the consultation about it, like, he he couldn't lift my arm up. Really? Yeah. I mean, he could Without get, it hurting? He, could, he couldn't. It stopped at a certain point because scar tissue had formed so strongly. Wow. So, you know, he's describing it to me. He's like, you'll be knocked out. You'll be laying down on the thing. I'm going to take your arm. And he kind of shows me like he's holding it against his chest. He goes, and I'll push it forward and break it free with my body weight. And I was like, this sounds uh, brutal. Yeah. And it is a brutal procedure, you know. Uh, but, yeah, still refuse the payment. So people would say, you know, it's. You're so brave and strong, and no, it's all it's all fear driven. Yeah, you know, and I know what will happen. And you but know, come on, realistically, that's what brave and strong is. People who are afraid but do it anyways. Well, I mean, here's the here's the, the thing though. I did the the surgery wasn't the scary part, right? It's the consequences of putting opiate narcotics in my body, right? Uh, so yeah, I didn't do the thing I was afraid of. Right. You know what I mean? I did the painful thing instead, but. Uh, here's the thing. I, I guess I had like 14 years sober at that point. Could I have taken pain meds? Probably. You know what I mean? Probably could have. You know, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, do I think I could follow directions? I think I've shown that I'm pretty good at following directions. Yeah. But there's that little chance. Right. You know what I mean? That, that it would not have gone well. Right. Or, uh, you know, the idea gets planted like, hey, man, you followed directions. Like, you did it right just the way that the doctor said. Right. You could probably smoke like it, a little weed here and there. You it know might I mean? be okay the first month and then three months down the road be like, well, you know, I mean, I did do okay with that. So, and exactly. then you're exactly. on that slippery slope of going back down in a spiral. And it's insanity is what it is. Yeah. Like based on like Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is an insane thing to do. And, Stop uh, calling me insane, Jay. <laughs> right? You just beat your <laughs> head against kidding. the wall wondering why things aren't changing when you're not changing. Right. Uh, your decisions aren't changing. You're doing the same exact thing over and over again, thinking that magically one day it's going to work. It's just going to, yeah. And so, yeah. So, it just it's not worth... I'd, I'd rather just suffer the pain that I know is coming rather than the absolute nightmare that could come. That could, yeah. So, do you feel like you have any addictions now? You know, definitely a nicotine addict. Nicotine. You know, I, I vape instead of smoke now. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely uh, addicted to spending too much money on vapor products. Like yeah. the thing that I've got with me today, that's a $500 setup right there, man. $500? That thing looks like a suitcase with... Well, you're looking at 300 for the device itself, 10 bucks for the battery... Hundred bucks for the bridge, and then fifty bucks for the doors. So when you inhale, do you get like somebody to come in and personally massage your lung on the inside for five hundred dollars? You know, I should at least get like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition or something, right? But, uh, <laughs> but no, it's just I don't know, man. 
<laughs> I, I like that thing. I was heavy into like the mechanical mods, like the big cloud ball and stuff, and that's not really what this is. And so, uh, I sold some things, some some stuff that I had collected, some vapor stuff that I collected, and yeah. got this. You know, and, and I'm going farther and farther down that rabbit hole on that billet box, and so. So you're you're kind of going down the rabbit hole with the vaping because. I mean, I've been that, for six years. Here's the thing about that, dude. So the uh, and, and that's a topic as far as why people hate us, why people hate the vapor industry, uh, and and what propaganda led to it, and the motivations behind it, dude. I could talk about that for three or four hours. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't want to go into that. It all yeah. boils down to uh, money that states are losing, both in cigarette taxes and from yeah. the 1998 tobacco master settlement agreement from that big lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, so they put out all this misinformation. They put out all these these quote unquote studies. They don't prove anything. All those yeah. studies say may. It may. Right. Uh, but I've been vaping for six years. And beginning of last year, I uh, I had this cough that just would not go away. Right? Yeah. Like six weeks, dude. And it was uncontrollable. I didn't sleep at all through the night. Uh, I believe at this point it was COVID. Uh, but at the time, we had no idea. Right. You know, I mean, we didn't even think it was in America yet. So it was like the end of February, beginning of March of last year. And, yeah. uh, so I go to the hospital and they do a chest x-ray and all this other stuff. And there were, they, the, the one x-ray tech comes in and she's like, you're not a smoker, huh? And I was like, no, ma'am. She's like, did you ever smoke? Your lungs look great. And I was wow. like, no, I never, no, I, I, I smoked for 24 years. And right. she's like, oh my God, you quit. And I was like, yeah. And, you know, when people ask me, like medical people ask me how I quit, I just say, I don't know, just quit. Yeah, because when you say that you vape, then they freak out on you. Then they say it's the same. Even as though they, even they, they just told you, hey, your lungs look right. perfectly. We have the, the they, we have the picture evidence right here. Like but I'm going to flip on you. They've healed up from the damage that you did to them. Wow. But then, freak out. So let me ask you that because my bigger thing, I feel like addiction is something you will never be able. To get away from, like you have to figure out how to deal with addiction and addiction and sobriety are not the same thing. Because for me, like one of my current addictions right now is the, the Tetris game on my phone. I will find myself playing the game and feeling so good at beating it and doing, doing all that stuff and just one after another, after another until I look up and I'm like, Oh my God, it's been a half an hour. I need to eat. Or something well, like. I mean, as long as it's not causing negative consequences in your life, like. Don't but be well, and that's the thing that. But sobriety deals only with drugs. It's not like I'm like, all right, I've been four years sober from Tetris. I'm I'm good. Like you know, you're well, not I mean, gonna... people have like 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 clean dates from like donuts, man. Really? From gambling. Gambling's a big addiction thing. Yeah. I don't gamble either because of the same. Same worries. But when I think of so- sober or sobriety, I-, I think of drugs, alcohol, maybe right. even nicotine, stuff like that. But I-, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is you can say that, but there are, you can be addicted to anything. Like, yeah, no, and- I mean, if you have compulsive behavior and you manage to break that hold on you, whether it's with or without help, uh, I mean, I think you should celebrate that. You know, I mean, there's people that, like I said earlier, there's people who can possibly eat toilet paper right off the roll. And I saw that on My Strange Addiction, and I thought it was totally made up. And then I saw a woman sitting in a minivan outside a comedy club, 
just going to town, picking off little pieces mm-hmm. of this toilet paper, eating it. Yeah, I mean, it's really? clean toilet paper right off the roll, so <laughs> you don't well, have to yeah. think it's as gross as, as you might be. No, I mean, I guess it's good. Here's the thing. When I was a kid, I used to eat movie tickets. When I would be in a movie, I would I would sit there and I would compulsively just chew on the movie right. ticket, and then by the end, it, I, it would be gone. I'd eat the whole ticket by the end of the movie right, just but, because... I mean, whatever it is in your life, if it's causing... If it's causing negative consequences and you manage to break that stranglehold that it has on you, whether it's with therapy, whether it's going to treatment and like eating disorders, man, self harm, man, there's so many terrible things that people can do to themselves compulsively without it being drugs or alcohol that are, you know, it's just as important to celebrate those wins. Uh, and when I, I don't really celebrate and I have like a party, you know, every year on my, yeah. my anniversary date, but I definitely let it be known to the world, and, and it's part partly to celebrate it for myself, but partly for for somebody that knew me, especially man, because a lot of my friends. So here's what's weird. So when I first got sober, I ran into a lot of people that called me a junkie scumbag for years, who are now heroin addicts. Really, in need of help, right? And the first guy was a guy who actually bullied me relentlessly in high school, uh, and then you know I'm a freak and all the other you know, homophobic slurs that they would yeah. call us back then and all that. And, uh, cause being a punk rock hit in Independence, Kentucky was not a particularly easy thing to no. be, you know? Uh, but so then even after high school, when I was still drinking, I run into this guy at a bar and, uh, he comes up to me. He's like, Hey, remember me, man? And, and I guess he just remembered my face, but didn't remember like how brutal him and his friends were to me. Right. And, uh, I was like, yeah, dude. Yeah. I remember you. <laughs> you yeah. gave my life a living hell. And he's like with this chick that he's been talking to. And, um, so he ends up being kind of a jerk after that. Uh, and then I, I was about a year sober. I just moved home and I hear, Hey, this particular guy is bad off. And initially I'm like, good. Right. I hate that guy. You know, like it serves him right. I ran into him at an Ameristop and he was bad off. And, uh, I walked up to him and I was like, Hey man, do you remember me? Yeah. And he kind of knew who I was, but he kind of didn't. And I was like, hey, man, I, uh, from what I understand and the way you look, uh, you've been going through some rough times and, uh, you don't have to keep doing that. You don't. And if you want to go to treatment, like, it was a longer conversation than that. Right. But, uh, that's what it came to, you know, at the end, like, I will take you, dude. Wow. Because I didn't want him living like that. Right. You know, I didn't work, wish it. On like, even though he made your life a living hell, you still didn't want him. Right. The pain and suffering of a, of a drug addict and an alcoholic, man, it's in, it's intense. You know, it is. And, you know, people think that it's this, uh, they have this idea that it's like partying all the time. And, and you know, a lot, most of the time it starts out as that. But eventually it becomes maintenance. You yeah. know, and it is not. Like the good times catch up with you. And the good times are over. Now you're just trying to get stay to a point where you don't kill yourself on purpose. You yeah. know, and, and I saw him in that state and, and I didn't feel good. You know what I mean? I wasn't right. happy anymore. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the, uh, the humanity that we've lost, you know, being a society that basically lives on social media. You know what I mean? When I heard about this guy, good. Right. You know what I mean? But then I saw him. Really suffering. Right. I, I can't abide by it. You know what I mean? I have to offer. Right. And he refused. You know what I mean? And uh, I went about my business, and I've never seen or heard anything about this guy since then. But it is what it is. I hope he got sober. Right. You know what I mean? Or I hope that uh, if he did go out, that he didn't take anybody else out with him, and he didn't cause any extra harm. You know what I mean? Like, right. 
Um, well, and honestly, I mean, and even in that situation, because I find this too with myself, uh, the older that I get, I, the more I don't want to think back on a situation and think, oh man, I should have done this. Right. Like if I think I should do something, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And if it works out to be the, the best thing, then then hopefully that's that's great for everybody. Yeah, but, hopefully you're right more than you're not. Right. I mean, there, there's is, no you know, there's no way of really knowing. That takes us back to life must be lived forward, but understood in reverse. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, Jay. Uh, I think we've had a pretty great conversation here. I don't know if you helped any of these audience people. I don't know about that. But you've definitely helped me. Um, and that's what's most important. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think that's great, man. I think that's great. I think that uh, after the conversation that we had, especially the way it began in the beginning, that that's the perfect joke to kind of wrap things up with. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you want to do this again, we, can t- we didn't even talk about comedy, really. You know what I mean? Like, we yeah, touched on it. Yeah. But, uh, when, when you start digging into stuff, you know, with, with, I mean, you're going to have guests that, that, especially people that know themselves or know their trade, like really know it. Yeah. Uh, the conversations are going to get way out of control because you tend to relate things in your life to that trade even. Yeah. You know, it seems boring. Like you talk, if you get a tile guy in here, like you can bet that the way that he does his work influences the way he lives his life and the way that he lives his wife life, you know, influences the way that he works. And everything's connected, man. Right. You know what I mean? Everything's good. Well, I believe everything has a life. Like, I, I've always thought that it'd be, it's interesting to think of, you know, you might use a paper clip. Like, it first had to be forged out of some sort of metal. Iron ore at some, one point, yeah. Right. And then shipped and delivered. So, I mean, you, you may see it as something that's just sitting on your desk that eventually you'll use someday. Todd to, Snyder's got a song about starting off as a tree and ending up as a newspaper. Nice. And I forget what the song is called, but I'll have to look that up. Todd's a guy that he, he knows himself. You know what I mean? And his songs are very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, I can't think of what I'm looking for. They're, they're they're insightful. Yeah. Because he knows himself. You know what right. I mean? He pays attention to the world around him, and I think that's the, I think that's the biggest thing, dude. Pay attention to what happens. I'll tell you what. You remember my name, my neighbor Nadine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, amazing yeah, lady. House now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You live in her house now. Uh, amazing lady. She was in the Navy in World War Two. Right. Um, up at Wright Patterson, she helped with like billing. Like she actually created like a billing thing. Anyways. I was going through a whole bunch of her stuff because, you know, she's passed. So now we kind of have like her pictures and her paperwork and all of that. And so I was going through some of that stuff and I found this picture because her mom was a teacher. Right. And it's this classroom. Now, this was back in the 40s and 50s. So this was during the Cold War. Right. And the image has a chalkboard in the background. And on the chalkboard, it says, if... We have beaten this war of nuclear arms. It is because we finally know thyself. Right. That knowing thyself is more important and the only thing that could actually beat the nuclear war that was going on, the Cold War that they were afraid of at that time. And I don't know. To to me, that just speaks volumes because so many mean, evil, bad things are done out of ignorance. Right. That if you just 
you know, listen to the maintain podcast and start, you know, if you, if you do anything that really educate yourself, you're going to better your life. Right. Porn porn rarely comes from insight and education. Right. What do you want your legacy to be? I don't know that I want one. I I think the least amount of harm you can do to the world is leaving without having changed it much. I don't believe the whole boy scouts thing. Yeah. But here's the thing. You have kids. Yeah, and I, I feel like I've broken that cycle of trauma. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, uh. But that's the thing. That, that, that's what I love about legacy is that it can be as simple as breaking that cycle of trauma for yeah, the no next long, generation. No longer bringing more harm into the world. And I think that fits exactly with what my initial answer was that you didn't like. Which, wait. That I, I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't want to have changed the world. Well, you may not want to. So I stopped. I stopped bringing more harm to kids. Right, but well, that's the thing about a legacy is you have no choice in it. Yeah, well, I would say that the actions that you take every single day have some choice in what your legacy is. Oh yeah, but your legacy isn't decided by you; it's decided by those who come after you. Right, but the the my daughter will not know or understand. The harm that she could have faced. You know what I mean? Because hurt people hurt people. Typically, child abuse is something that's passed down from generation to generation. Right. Uh, so, cause no harm. That's what I want my legacy to be. He caused less harm than he could have. Right. Well, and and that's great. And I'm not trying to, like, discredit any answers or anything. You were saying that you, you want no legacy. But... Right. My thing about legacy that, that kind of hit me in my 30s was that no matter what, you're going to leave a legacy. You can either choose to do good, better actions to leave a better legacy, or people will look at you and say what they want after you're dead. Yeah, people are going to look at you and say what they want anyway. Right. But hopefully... You'd be the best guy in the world. You're an enemy. You're a villain in someone's story. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Every, everybody's hero is somebody else's but, but, but at least I know the villain in me. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know the harm that I've caused. And, and uh, so, you know, for the, the people that are out there that, that take issue with me or the things that I say or the things that I've done in my past, you know, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Like, I get it. I suck. You know, uh, but I'm trying not to, to, to be harmful in the way that I have been. Right. You know, and, and I feel like I've got, I mean, I've made mistakes. I've caused harm in sobriety. You know what I mean? And some of it, I don't want to make it sound like any of it was on purpose. You know what I mean? But some of it, I really didn't see the unintended consequences of my actions, that what they would have on somebody else. Right. You know, and, and how far reaching some of that stuff can be, you know. Uh, and, and I try to be more mindful of that. Right. Now. And, and it took some painful experiences for myself, understanding that I caused harm. You know what I mean? Once, once you make that decision that where you don't want to be, uh, creating havoc in the world when you create it, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to make it sound this simple, but it's like losing at a game that you've gotten good at. Right. You know, like, oh, that was stupid. Why'd you do that? Right. It gotta be better. You know? Well, it kind of opens your eyes to see how much chaos and harm you've caused before. Oh yeah. I got a list of it. Right. (laughs) Like I wrote it down. You know what I mean? Right. 
And except in cases when it will cause more harm to bring it up to a person or even see that person. Right. You know, sometimes the, the best thing you can do is just never see that person again. And that's not a cop-out. You know what I mean? You give no, somebody I, money, you go give them that money. Dude, I went to a, a store that I had shoplifted from that never caught me. Told yeah. them. This is what I assume, based on my calculations, that I have taken from your store without paying. Yeah. You know, I gave them my name, my social security number, and all that stuff. And they're a, a very large corporate store. And uh, they, they they sent me to talk to their loss prevention people because the people in the manager's desk didn't know what to do about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> as I'm saying this to these people, and I wrote it down, I wrote a letter that I read to them so that I didn't try to minimize or justify my actions or any right. of that. And uh, the lady's like, I don't, like, I'll call corporate, but I don't know what to do like how how do we even accept money from you like i don't have like an account that i can put it in right uh but that none of that stuff even mattered because it was just it i'm sure it felt better to you to go there and and tell them look this is the wrong that i've caused you uh, if you want i will make up for it it, no there was no if you want it was i have this money with. oh you actually had the money well i had a down payment on it uh and i was trying to set up a payment plan with them and uh Man, they they just didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. (laughs) Did they eventually take the money? They told me that they would have someone from corporate contact me, and they never did. Wow. But the important thing is that I made the effort. You know what I mean? I was willing to do it. So, like, I understand the the harm that I've caused. I understand that. And and so some of it's farther reaching than you think. So people that that shoplift, they make all the prices go up for everybody else. Right. You know, and, and for your middle class people, most of the people listening to this podcast probably is not going to make a difference. But sometimes that, you know, that extra $10 a week on yeah. groceries makes a difference to a family that's of low income. Yeah, they you can be I mean? a dinner. So that's, that's real harm that I cause. I cause real, you don't, you don't see it as, as really hurting real people when you're stealing from a corporation. You see it as stealing from these corporate jerks, yeah. you know what I mean, that have more money than they know what to do with, but they pass that cost on to the poorest people. Right. You know, so I call it, I, I know the extent, well, let me rephrase that. I have a much better comprehension of the extent of damage that I've done than I did. Right. You know, I still, I, none of us will ever truly know the amount of harm that we've caused in the exact same way that none of us will ever know the amount of good right. that, that, that we've caused. Well, I try to follow a I don't know, philosophy, I guess is what you call it, but leave things better than you found them. Yeah, it's Boy Scouts, man. That's what I was saying. Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. That the Boy Scouts. Do no them. harm, but. Well, no, do no harm is the, uh, the Hippocratic oath. That's the doctor thing. Oh, okay. Leave things better than you found them is the Boy Scouts motto. Oh, okay. All right, Jay. Well, I appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks and... for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Maintain. Here's a clip from our next episode, Maintaining Beauty, with local actress Misty Jump. I'll, I'll tell a story um, from when I worked at um, my full-time job. Okay. So I was at the drive-thru, and there was this man, and he came up in a truck every single day, and he was, like, gruff, just, yeah. mean, mean, mean. Well, every single day when he would come in, come up to the drive-thru, I would always greet him with, Hey, good morning. How's your day going? And it took me about a year. And one day he said back, it's great. Thank you so much. And then ever since then, he would come through and he would smile. Please be sure to review and follow this podcast so you can be notified of the next episode. Maintain is brought to you by Christopher Keeney Productions. If you like what you hear, contact us and maybe we can do a podcast for you. 
Thank you and good luck maintaining. It's about making that human connection, right? And that's what your podcast is kind of about, making a connection with somebody who's done something, you know, for a consistent period. And so you want your audience to maintain, you want you in, in five years, you want to have a random audience member on, like, how have you maintained listening to my podcast for these past five years? That and they'll be like, cool. well, it's amazing content. Your second guest just blew the doors off the place. And right. that's why, that's really why I'm here today because you had Jay Armstrong on, on the second episode. See?